The following content is brought to you as part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Oldham County. Join us each week as we examine the book of Job to see Jesus at the center of one of the earliest recorded texts in Scripture. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Yeah, no handouts tonight, um, but we are going to do something different tonight. So you're, I've been uh, talking at you for five weeks. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight, but it does require just like the other nights, active listening. And so if you've been writing on your handout, um, I, I guess I can give you a blank sheet of paper. If not, <laughs> just find a, you can write on a connect card if you want, you know. Um, wow, the dissatisfaction is incredible. <laughs> I feel the weight of it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well. You're kind of shaking a little bit. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> ah, great segue, Dan. All right, great. So the the folly of the three friends. No, I'm just playing. Um, yeah, we'll. So let's go ahead and let's let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. You are a almighty, great God, and there's one thing we've seen throughout Job. We see your sovereignty. We see your justice. Um, pray tonight that as we look at your speeches to Job, Lord, that we would be in awe of you. Lord, that we would behold you and see you for who you are. And Lord, that the things that we've already seen would be magnified even more. And Lord, may it cause us to worship you. Worship you, um, yes, in the highs, but also in the lows, especially in the lows. Lord, when the things come upon us, when things happen to us, Lord, may our reflex be to worship. We love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, tonight, so it's the last night of Job. Um, we'll be starting in chapter 38 and moving all the way through chapter 42. Um, we're going to do something a little different for part of tonight. I actually don't know how long it's going to take, so it could be short. I imagine it's, it's going to take it's going to take some time. That's okay. Um, but what we're going to do, I'm going to frame these last two speeches real quick. I'm just going to provide a structure for it and kind of a instruction for you. And then I I have some people that are going to come up here, and we're going to read and hear God's speeches, all of it, right here and now. Not bits and pieces. We've been going in and out, in and out uh, throughout this whole book, but tonight we're going to hear the whole thing. And I, there's a reason I want us to do that. Well, first of all, we're not used to that, I don't think. Maybe you are. I think most of us are not used to sitting and hearing the Word of God just read for an extended period of time. But I think it's important that for most people, 
Um, especially, you know, before 100 years ago, the way that they knew the Word of God is that they heard it. Because most people couldn't read it, so they heard it. And most of the time, that was on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning. They heard the Word of God read, prayed, spoken, and that's how they learned. And so tonight, I want us to engage that way. And um, one thing I want you to do, and this requires, because I, I do know, I, I'm not, I don't want to pretend like it's not hard to sit and read or hear someone read these almost four chapters, okay? And uh, they're big chapters, too. But what I want you to do is I want you to engage with it. And what I mean by that is the, these next chapters where God is speaking to Job, they have lots of imagery. I want you to engage your imagination a bit as you read, and I want you to see it and feel it as we read it, okay? I'm not trying to conjure up emotions for you or anything like that. I'm not, but, I, but the writer of Job is using poetry, is using these images to stir something up. And it's, and it's also to communicate certain things. So what we're going to do here in a minute, um, we're going to read that, and then I'm going to come back, uh, depending on how much time we have, and I'm going to hit a couple last themes, and then the very end of Joe, because that's not poetry, that's not God's speech, that's, that's just how, it's kind of like the epilogue, it's how Job ends, and we'll cover that. And so that's the plan for tonight, um, but before, Logan and Dave, y'all can go ahead and come up. While they're coming up, um, and Logan's going to be the one starting us off, while they come up, just, just to frame this for you, so these, we're going to be reading chapters 38 through most of 42, and um, it's broken up into two speeches, okay? So we're used to that, right? Because just to recap, in case you've missed a week or two, we've had different worldviews come in. We've had different ideas about suffering that's been communicated to us, right? And, and one thing I want us to keep in mind is that, remember, Job has not seen what has happened in the heavenly theater. He doesn't know about chapter 1 where the God and the Satan talk and he says, have you considered my servant Job? Job doesn't know any of that. We've got we've to remind ourselves of that every single time we read Job because he's just, it's happening to him and then he's responding. And then we have Job 3 where he laments he talks about, it's very dark, he talks about how he laments the day of his birth. I don't even want to be born because he's experiencing such great trial and suffering. His family has been killed, except for his wife. But his wife is telling him, hey, you should, you should curse God and die. Why don't you just do it, Job? Look at what's happened to you. He's got uh, boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's sitting in an ash heap outside of the city, isolated from the community, from society. And so he's alone. He's suffering. We, we want to feel that. And his comforters, quotes, come along. Come along. His friends come. And that's the first thing that we see. And, and we label that the system. And it's this idea that, hey, you get, you pay for what you get. So if you did something wrong, Job, if you sinned, then you're going to be punished immediately. So, therefore, the reason why you're suffering, Job, is because you've sinned. That's the reason. Now, we know that that's not true. 
Because that we've saw chapter one that that's not the reason why the suffering is happening to him. But that's the argument of the friends, and, and we've seen what that looks like. Job refutes them after every single speech. Friend talks, Job talks. Friend talks, Job talks. And then he refutes it every time. He easily defeats his friends. He, he defeats that logic. And even when you read, you can defeat that logic. But then we see, in, in the midst of that, we see Job's logic. And, and what Job is saying is, I have not, I'm not suffering because of a sin that I have committed. He's right in that. But, all in all, he's declaring to God that it is unfair what is happening to him. And so in the midst of that, he's questioning questioning the the justice, the fairness of God. And he's concerned with him being right. I'm right. I'm right. God, this is unfair. What you're doing to me, you count me as an enemy. What you're doing to me, it's unfair. And And then comes Elihu, which we talked about last week a very contested figure, but we see that Elihu rebukes Job, and rightly so, because he doesn't rebuke Job like the friends did. He doesn't tell Job, hey, Job, suck it up. You, you did something wrong. You're, you need to repent of, of the sin you did to deserve the suffering. No, he comes at it at a different angle. He says, no, there wasn't a sin that caused this suffering, but Job, in your suffering, you have sinned. In your suffering... You have said incorrect things about God. You have said wrong things about God. And we notice in Elihu's, in Elihu's speech that Job never speaks. And I think we infer from that that because he doesn't respond, like he responds to the friend's rebukes, Job agrees with him. So at the end of chapter 37, Elihu, his speech ends, and then we come to chapter 38. All right, so here's where we start. If you just came in, we are going to be going through all of God's speech. And so I'm going to, Logan's going to read it, but this first, I, I, I want us to get the picture of what's about to happen, okay? Again, I want you to engage with this. Um, verse 1 talks about the Lord answering to Job out of the whirlwind. And I don't think that that's some, like, whirlwind. What does that mean? I think it's a whirlwind. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is because when you see in the Old Testament God speaking to his people in this way, like, think about Mount Sinai in the wilderness. The people are afraid because the, the Mount Sinai has smoke and clouds and fire. It's a scary scene because God is speaking is going to be speaking to Job unmediated. There's no one in between. Job is going to be speaking, or God's going to be speaking straight to Job. Feel the weight of that. Because a lot of times in the Old Testament, when God speaks to his people, he does so through a prophet. But what we see here is we see God speaking directly through Job out of the whirlwind. So uh, follow along with us. It's a long road, but we're going to get there. Um, and then we'll come back and see some things. We're going to be switching off so you don't get tired of our voices. Well, you probably will be by the end of this, but um, we'll go ahead. Logan, if you want to start with chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on the land where no man is, on a desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come from? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open, and they go out and do not return to them. 
Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plan for his home and the salt and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as he as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs on to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spread his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood and wear. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you ever condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down on the wicked eye where they stand. Hide the all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins. 
and his power in the muscle of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth is terror? His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, his, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke. As from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. They fold on his flesh, stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's a big chunk of scripture, but it's a powerful one. And we're going to, let's let's look back at chapter 38. And again, I, I want you to notice, see how it was broken up where the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. It says that twice. 
It says, the dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. So you see that in verse 2 of 38. You see it again uh, later on in his God's second speech. And so looking at this first speech, so I'm gonna, looking at chapter 38, verses 4, um, all the way up through Job chapter 40, um, into verse 5 of chapter 40, we see essentially a theme happening. God is, God is showing Job, and, and he, he's doing this by asking lots of rhetorical questions. And rhetorical questions are kind of interesting, because when a rhetorical question is asked, right, you don't expect, God is not expecting an answer back. First of all, Job says, I don't even have an answer. <laughs> when he gets, when Job does speak, he's, I don't have an answer, <laughs> right? But God asks these questions of Job, and it begs the answer, God. Job, who did this? It makes Job answer it internally. He internalizes it. Oh, it's you. Job, who does this? It's you. It can only be you. Who does this, Job? It can only be you, God. Rhetorical questions can be powerful. I ask them to my children all the time, to, my kid, to Gabby all the time. Where I don't expect an answer, but I'm making a point by asking the question. And a lot of what we just read is that over and over again. And I think it highlights, too, that, listen, no one, and Job even said this earlier on, no one can stand before God and question God. God, this is unfair. Come to God and say, this is unfair. And God illustrates for us why that is. And so these first two chapters especially starting in verse 4 through 38. So this section of this first speech highlights the counsel of God in the inanimate order. So the, God's government over things that are not um, people, right? And so he talks a lot about nature. So one of those things, if you look in verse 8, I think this is a really powerful image. Job tell, or God tells Job in verse 8, who, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swallowing band, and prescribed limits, and, and for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no further. And here you shall, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Um, last week at work, uh, we have, we communicate conference calls on Microsoft Teams. If you're in corporate sit at a desk you probably are familiar with that or something um, and so we do these polls you can do polls on teams where you ask questions and then, so sometimes while we're waiting on the, uh, the the client to get on the phone we'll do if we're early we'll do like some fun questions for people that have joined the call and so one of those questions I can't remember it was something having to do with the cruise it was like what's your favorite thing on a cruise and people were talking about all these things and the whole time I was thinking like you ain't gonna find me on a boat in the middle of the ocean for an extended period of time. That's just me personally. I know lots of people like to cruise. And the reason for that is because I'm scared of the ocean. Like, I, I'm fine. I love going to the beach. But think of the ocean. Have you ever just been in the middle of the ocean and looked all around you? It is a very, yeah, we try and predict the weather, but it is a very volatile situation. Waves, storms, what can do? And so this, this picture of the sea, even when we see it in the Bible, it's this wild thing that, that can't be tamed. You, we can't tame it as human beings. 
And I think it's interesting God uses this, and you even see this later on, because God here tells us, look at the sea. Who set its limits? I did. Who says don't come any further? I do. God is telling Job, this, he's shown his sovereignty over creation. And by doing this, he's starting to answer Job's question. It, you even look to the New Testament. There's a lot of seas in the New Testament. Y'all know the story of Jesus? He's in the boat, and there's a, there's a storm. And his disciples, they're freaking out because there's a storm. They're in the middle of the ocean, like I would be. I'd be freaking out. And what does Jesus do? He gets up and he says, peace be still. Stops. That's important. Because we see the authority of God in Jesus. Jesus, therefore, highlighting, I am God. Look, I come with authority. Like the sea, it's not just some accident. He's on a boat and he's like, yeah, stop this. No, he is communicating something. So anytime we see this picture of the sea, we, we see a a very wild, unpredictable thing that, that we can't control, though we, we sometimes try. And, and to a measure, I guess we can control certain things about it, but ultimately, it, man, you fall off the boat, especially in the middle of a storm. You ever seen that movie, The Perfect Storm? I, watch, I haven't. I watched the trailer on Netflix. I was like, nope. <laughs> that in space. I don't want to go to space. That's a side trail. Don't put me in space. I'll die on earth, okay? Even if the earth's on fire, I'll die with it, okay? I don't want to go to space. But you see this picture, and I think it's interesting that that God chooses these specific things to show Job, hey, look, I can tame the seas. If you move on throughout, look at verse, uh, or if you look at verses 39 all the way through chapter 39, verse 30, he starts talking about, God starts showing Job, I am sovereign over wildlife, birds, animals, that sort of thing. And we read a lot of that. The birthing cycles of goats on the mountain. I control those things, Job. I'm going to scoot back a little bit because I love this too. Verse 22, again, he's talking about, here he's talking about rain and hail. He says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? And it's just this picture of God. He has these things stored up. He he has control over hail, rain, snow, sleet, and all those things thwart plans of men. I think we can all all attest to that. They thwart our plans often. God has the power to do that. And he goes on, he, he describes the same thing with animals. And uh, there's a, a quote. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Um, I know he's a, I think he's a popular pastor. Someone could correct me later. Derek Kidner, Kindner. Um, he says this. I think it's really interesting. He says, uh, God's speech, he cuts, down to si- he cuts down to size, treating us, treating us not as philosophers, but as children, limited in mind, puny in, puny in body, whose first fundamental grasp of the truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. And to accept it. So when we see this first speech, we see a picture, God's pain. He's he's answering Job first. He's saying, I am sovereign over everything, Job. Look, at anything you could think of, I am sovereign over it. He's not only created it, but he sustains it. 
And so Job is to look on this. And let's look in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says this, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hands on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Essentially what he's saying in that last verse, I've spoken once or twice, right? But I'm not going to talk any further. And you see Job is silenced. And he's coming to grips with the fact that who God is. And, and Job has said some things in his speeches about God and his sovereignty and who he is, some right things about him. But remember, he's also said some things about Job that have been incorrect. And so God in his answer, he's beginning to correct those things. But in this next speech, what God is going to do is address justice, is address Job's uh, Job's concern that God is being unjust. Elihu did that already, but now God is answering. But he does it in such a, a just a weird way that we would probably never think of. Um, and, and one that is, when you read it, you're like, what is he talking about? Um, but let, let, me, let me go to verse 7. It says this in chapter 40. It says, dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? So again, are you going to put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job, you wanted to be in a courtroom with me? Are you going, now that, now that I'm talking to you, are you going to condemn me? Are you going to put me in the wrong? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Just a side note, think of, James Earl Jones, think of his voice and how, you know, we, we love his voice. Darth Vader, you know, or what's the other, other thing? Oh, he did the King James Bible. You're probably familiar, right? He's done all these things with his voice, but it's nothing like the voice of God. The voice of God carries authority and power. And we know that creation was created not with a wand or with a wisp of his finger. It was created by the word of his power. By God's word, he created. He spoke it. There was nothing. He spoke. He created. He created by his words. The very words that God is speaking now to Job. And so we see this again. So it marks kind of a, I think what he's doing in this is when he repeats that. Remember, we saw that in chapter 38, dressed like a man for action. He's, re, he's starting a new section where he's going to do some of the same stuff. He's going to paint an image for us, but he's going to answer Job's questions a little bit differently. He's going to really bring out his justice. Um, so I'm, this next section, I'm, I'm going to focus on the next section of God's speech, two things, okay? Or it's really one thing, but broken up into two images. And so you, you all are very, probably very familiar, or maybe not, of this image of a behemoth. I think we use that sometimes. Wow, he's a behemoth, you know, uh, not often, but I've heard that used, right? can't remember the last time that was used now. In my mind, I think we use it, but now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we don't use that very often. Mammoth. I'm thinking of mammoth. Never mind. So we don't use it often. So behemoth 
And then we see Leviathan. Now we see, we've seen Leviathan throughout the scriptures, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Um, I'm going to give you different, just real quick, some different views of this. Um, there's really two different views of what this is, what this is saying. Um, because what God is doing, he, he, it's kind of like what he was doing with his sovereignty over the animals. He said, hey, do you look at Behemoth. Look at Leviathan. And he describes Behemoth and Leviathan. He, he describes all these things about him. You're like, what is he doing? Like describing how sharp his teeth are and all these things. You're like, what is happening here? And so one of those views, and so before we get to the meat of this, is that he's talking about actual physical animals that existed um, or even still exist. And so a lot of people think Behemoth is like a hippopotamus and Leviathan is like this crocodile because when they're talking about it, the Behemoth seems to be like a land animal by the river, by a body of water, and the crocodile um, Leviathan is clearly some sort of sea monster creature, and so there's some things. But the problem, the problem with that is that not everything that's described doesn't match up with the descriptions of those animals, okay? And, and the reason why some people think that is because, you know, this area is near Egypt. Hi hippopotamus, crocodile, there. In Egypt mythology, they're viewed as these uh, symbols of chaos, Okay? Um, but, so that, that's one view, and, and if you go down the road to the Creation Museum or the Ark, you know, I think there's, they really love Leviathan over there. Um, maybe it's a dinosaur. I don't know. I'm telling you this, like some people say, oh, these are dinosaurs. And remember, like Job is happening somewhere between like Genesis 6 and Genesis 12. It, it, it's either predating Abraham or around the time. I don't care about that, and neither should you, okay? That's not the point, all right? We shouldn't make an argument from dino for dinosaurs here. That's not what God's trying to do, all right? But if you want to say they're dinosaurs, okay, that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that, but I don't think that's what God's trying to do, and so the other view of this, of these things, because we have to address them because they take up so much space in God's speeches, and so another view of this, and stick with me here, okay? Let me ask you this question. When I say the word, for some of you, Voldemort, what does that conjure up images of? Nerd. <laughs> All right. If you haven't read or seen Harry Potter, you're not allowed to answer it. A noseless face. Okay, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, like evil. Way to go, Logan. Oh, yeah. Yes, evil. Like, you, he's this dark character, okay? Think. Of, all right, here's another one for you, Bob. Boogeyman. What do you think of when you think of Boogeyman? What? I didn't hear what you said. Halloween, okay. Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, why? Because it was a boogeyman. It's scary. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We're starting to get off the rails. <laughs> Baba Yaga. I was playing John Wick reference. Um, yes, John Wick as well. Um, the reason why I'm asking you those things, you can think, think of any storybook character, 
uh, some sort of thing that maybe you grew up with or even now that struck terror into your heart, that struck terror into your, to your soul. Like I, I, I remember just being a kid, and uh, I told this story not too long ago, not in here, but I watched um, when blockbusters existed, you know, that Friday night was a sacred time. Pizzas, getting cooked at Pizza Hut, Dad takes us to Blockbuster. I'm looking at the movies on the shelf. Um, one of those movies, uh, I think it was called 13 Ghosts. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I picked it up and I looked at the back and I was horrified because there was this very scary picture and I turned it around, went home, didn't even watch the movie, went home that night. I had nightmares, couldn't sleep all night. I was like crying, <laughs> Dad, come in my room. You know, you're weird when you're a kid, you're like in your bed and I don't know if you did this, but I'd be like, I want to cry out for my dad at the same time I didn't want the ghost or boogeyman to hear me, so I'd be like, You know, you're like, I don't know how this is going to work. Maybe he'll hear me. He never did. But there are these pictures that strike fear into your heart, strike fear into your soul. And think of just this, some sort of storybook, comic character image that would just strike fear into your heart. And I think somewhat of what God is trying to do is like that, okay? And there's this view, you know, in the ancient Near East, so at the time of this, there's other sort of mythologies out there. There's these well-known types of characters. One of these would be Leviathan, that if you brought up Leviathan, they know exactly what you're talking about. It is this, I, sh- I almost brought a picture. It's not an actual picture. It's just a rendering of a, just someone drawing what they think it looks like, right? But it's this sea monster, sea creature out of the depths of the sea with sharp teeth who kills and destroys, and is evil, and when people were to hear that name, they immediately, oh, that's terrifying, that's terrifying. Well, I think what's being communicated here is that, and, and, and so when you see that, again, we're not saying, I, we're not saying that, uh, well, we are essentially saying that there, that God could be using these images to stir up something into the readers, and for us, like, we don't know what Leviathan is, but we know in our own lives things like this, these, these things that we consider dark and evil and how they would affect us, but that's not the point. God is going to, to use these, and they're going to be symbolic of something, and so let me just say this. Whether they're real animals or whether they're just to be, like, whether they were just ancient Near East storybook characters that are just meant to be conjured up, imagination, like in people's minds, whether, whatever the case is, they are symbolic of something. And I want to focus on Leviathan because Leviathan, I'm going to quote, quote Robert Fiall, is the embodiment of cosmic evil itself. And so when we look at, when you go back, we're not going to read all of it, but when you go back to look at Leviathan, imagine what he's trying to show you. It's, it's to be symbolic of evil itself, of darkness itself. And Leviathan is used multiple times. Even back in Job 3, Job mentions Leviathan. Job 3, 8. Let me just read that real quick. Let those who curse it curse the day and are ready to rouse up Leviathan. So even Job is referencing it here. You see it again in Isaiah. 
again in the Psalms, and, and it, I encourage you to read it in Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14, because it's a picture. He's recounting the Exodus in the Psalms, and it's a picture of God crushing the head of the Leviathan, right? And it, it's God crushing evil, crushing Egypt. And, and so what he's doing, what God is doing is showing, he's saying Leviathan. In that case, he's not meaning an actual sea creature. He's meaning evil, the evil that they're facing at the time. You see it again in Psalm 104. And so when we see Leviathan, what's really trying to be communicated here is this seat of cosmic evil, evil itself. And we like to think when we read Job, oh, Satan was only in chapter 1 and 2. Well, here he is again. When you, when you go forward into Revelation, you see the same sort of thing with, with the dragon, which is uh, an image for the devil waiting on the, the woman to have her child, to, to devour that child, to snatch that child and destroy it. You see these images, and they're to, they're to let us see how evil. It's, it's just to personify evil. Because typically when we think of like a dragon or like fire-breathing dragons, we think of evil. We usually don't think, oh, that's a good thing, you know? Well, the readers, when they, when they hear this about Leviathan, that's the same sort of image that they're seeing. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 41, it says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Down to verse 11. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And God is reminding Job that even this evil is not above God. That the only person that can contain or tame Leviathan, just like the rest of the created order, is God. Just like we saw with Satan. God at first allows Satan to afflict, but he says no further. Then Satan comes back and says, can I afflict him more? He says, yes, but don't take his life. And so in the beginning, you see God being sovereign over evil. He's not the author of evil, that he is evil himself, but it is under his sovereignty. He says, you can come this far, but no further. You can come this far, but no further. And he paints it with this picture of Leviathan. We don't have time to read everything there, but in verse 33 it says this, on earth on earth there is not his like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. So again you see this picture of Leviathan being the seat of evil. But as you when God is asking these rhetorical questions, who can bridle him? Who can strip him of his outer garment? Who can do these things? It is, God is highlighting, it is me. And that's important for us to know, and important for Job to know, because God is just and perfectly fair, even when we don't understand it. Even if evil were to come upon you tonight, our response to that, yes, is sadness or you know, pain and suffering, those are real. But our response should not be to shake our fist at God and say, God, this is unfair, I don't deserve this. Because as we've seen throughout all of Job, we see this theme of an innocent sufferer. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can no longer say I'm suffering because I'm sinning. 
No, we are not punished for sin because Jesus took all of that on himself. So as a Christian, when we suffer, we are to lean into God and his wisdom. And that's hard to do. We're to lean into him and, and, to, and to depend upon him because he, as we saw, is the source of wisdom. He is good and is working all things together for our good. And that may mean tonight when you drive home, you die in a car wreck. But what awaits you on the other side of that is Christ. Your joys and your treasures, yes, we live a joyful life here and now, even in the midst of suffering, but even in our death, we don't face judgment. We face glory as we get to be with our Savior, the perfect Son of God. As we come to chapter 42, I'm going to read some of this. Verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job's Job's communicating here. We, we saw some of this earlier, but after God makes his second speech, it's a deeper understanding of Job understands that God is just, that God is good, that he is sovereign and in control. And Job's role in life is not to question the justice and the fairness of God and what's happening to him, but his role in life is to trust God, to worship God no matter what is happening. Therefore, in verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job recognizes in his suffering he has sinned. He said incorrect things about God, and you see his repentance. Then we come to verse 7. God's not done. So after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, okay, we, we got Eliphaz back on the scene. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Okay? So again, we've been referencing this verse a lot throughout this study. And so what's happening here is that God continues, even in his rebuke of Job, he still affirms Job. He affirms Job as a believer who is blameless and upright, turning, and we just saw it, turning from evil and to God. But his anger burns against his friends. And notice, too, he doesn't mention Elihu. And I think it's because Elihu said right things about God to Job. Verse 8, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So we see that again. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildab the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And this is beautiful. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, 
and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. We can't escape that. Remember, we talk, we've talked about that a lot, that the Lord had brought upon him. And evil here, you can kind of translate as, as um, harm, affliction. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He, he had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. The Lord restores Job, but not just restores him, doubles it what he was before. Now we can read that, and we could say, I'm suffering now. When it's over, the Lord's going to give me twice what I had. It's not what's being communicated here. Instead, you may die poor. Think of all the disciples. They all die, died, most of them died brutal, poor deaths. None of them were rich or prosperous by the world's standards. That's not the idea here. But these riches that we see that, that the Lord has restored to Job in his sovereignty, he does it because he wants to. But when we die and we meet our Savior, there's nothing. This doesn't even compare. This is just a shadow of that. In fact, when we look at all of Job, all of Job is, is a shadow of what's to come and what is fulfilled in Jesus. Because where Job was suffering innocently, he sinned eventually because he's a man. Jesus suffered innocently difference Jesus never sinned Jesus was perfect and he was perfectly righteous went to the cross for us he fulfilled this image of a of a of an innocent sufferer perfectly he didn't stay dead we know that he rose again and he stands as our mediator between us and God and he is a perfect mediator. And in his death, he has defeated the devil and Satan. And though Satan has been thrown down to earth to cause and wreak havoc, he's in, we talked about this last week, he's in his last days and he knows it. So he's going to come for you. He's going to come for people to keep you from Christ, to, keep, to get you to doubt Christ, to get you to doubt God and his goodness and his sovereignty and his justice. Satan is going to continue to do that but there's a difference now because we know as Christians we have the Holy Spirit of God and that Satan's end is near and that when we suffer we really aren't suffering alone we have as Job was wishing for a mediator someone who could argue his case someone that who could who could stand in the gap we have that in Christ we have that in Jesus and nothing can take us from the hand of God. Nothing can, can break us from his family. Um, 
one last thing, and then we're going to sing. Okay. Um, so, Dan, you can go ahead and come up. This is my last thing here. La- uh, Monday night, we were, ta- we were sharing the gospel with somebody and who, who um, just professed faith. And we were trying to explain it in different ways that, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you now are, you have all these things. Like we, we get a lot when we believe in Jesus. Not money, power, or fame, right? But we get all these blessings. We inherit so much. We inherit eternal life. But the one thing that stuck with them that really shook them was that when we said to them, when you believe in Jesus and trust in him, he adopts you. He makes you part of his family. He makes you part of his family. And he gives you the right to call him, to call God Father. And he won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. He won't let anything take you out of his sovereignty, out of his plan. And it's a beautiful picture.